Well, good morning again. I'm Pastor Ben. We're glad you're here this morning. Thank you, friends and family, for coming and celebrating with Casey. Uh, We appreciate that, and just thank you for the support. Um, We are walking through the book of Romans, and we're going to look at chapter 7 this week. I'm very excited to share this with you. Uh, We've learned a lot, if you've been with us, about this guy, Paul, who writes this book. And we've learned some things. If you read through the book of Romans, and I really encourage you, uh, just that's a great book. If, if there's one book, it's hard to maybe, uh, should maybe the gospel, if you, if you had to tell a person to read one book to get what the Christian faith is all about, it's hard for me. It's hard for me. First, I just think, well, of course, Jesus is life, ministry, teaching, uh, one of the gospels, but Romans is just so crystal clear. Uh, and that's what Paul's purpose was. Paul was writing this book, really, to this church in Rome uh, that he was not sure if he was, he wanted to, but he wasn't sure if he was going to see them. So he wanted them to know what the Christian faith was. And so that's why it so clear, clearly spells that out. But here's what we learn about Paul. Let's start with the positives. Uh, <laughs> he's brilliant. Uh, God wired him and created him to just be an incredible thinker. Uh, but with that brilliance comes just this kind of meticulous uh, way of presenting this information, which I think can be really helpful, but it makes it so crystal clear what he's teaching because he'll say it again and he'll circle back around and say it again and he'll circle back around and say it again. And so this morning we're looking at him dealing with people wanting to add the law to Jesus and faith in him and following him. Uh, the early church dealt with this, this problem. That, that people who believed in Jesus as the Messiah, as they looked at the scripture they had, what we would pretty much consider the Old Testament, they said, God has, he made a plan for this Messiah to come and to be the Savior. And they were putting their trust and faith in Jesus and saying, hey, he's the Messiah. But they couldn't, some of them had a hard time letting go of the old way of doing things or, or what's spelled out as, as Paul would describe it, the law. And so there was a lot of people that were Jewish now accepting the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, saying, okay, that's great, but now Gentiles want to follow Jesus and accept him. And Gentiles are simply everyone else who's not Jewish. But the Gentiles, they need to pick up the 613 laws that we follow in the Old Testament, Right? If they're really going to follow God, that's, that, um, that's my music to emphasize that. If they really want to follow God, surely they've got to pick up all these other laws. And, and, and Paul is trying to point out, no, we are not under the law anymore. We are dead to the law, is what he describes in chapter 7. Um, <clears throat> it reminds me of a reoccurring dream that I have. I'm looking at my daughter. I think I've shared this with her. Because it scares me. And I'm like, oh, you're there. I have this reoccurring dream that I didn't finish high school. You know? Like I didn't get the last half PE credit that I needed. And my principal calls me up and is like, hey, Ben, I'm sorry. You know, 20-some years ago, we get, I don't know how long it's been now. (laughs) 20-some years ago, we gave you this high school degree. We're going to have to take that back. Because you didn't finish, you know, your, your underwater pottery weaving class, whatever, 
you know, and, and I'm devastated and I'm so worried. And I think, but, but I, I have a college degree. Does that mean that's wiped away too? Because I can't get into college with a, a master's degree. That's gone too because I can't. And, and, and I just panic and I worry. And then I wake up. And I think, oh, that's just a stupid dream. Now, some of you guys, you know, psycho, you're, you're psychoanalyzing me right now, right? And you're like, I know what that means. You have a project that's not finished. <laughs> Kristen's like, my wife says yes. Anyways, what, what gives me this incredible sense of relief when I wake up is that I'm dead to high school. <laughs> that I can truly go, no, no, no. I got. I graduated from high school somehow, and I, I have a degree. And then I went on, and so like I'm. I never have to take another high school class. Praise God! Can I get an amen? I mean, that's the most exciting I've heard you guys respond to that. Um, you know, and I don't like my high school daughter here. Like, hey, you got to go through it once. But man, what a sense of relief that I never. There's, there's no, you know, higher high school degree I can go back and get or something like I'm, I'm dead to high school completely. I've completed it. It's finished. And that's what Paul will continue to talk about here is that the law is not necessarily bad. It's something God gave us. It's something that, that Jesus fulfilled perfectly. It was a system in which Jesus fulfilled so that we could be right with God. So praise God for the law. But... Jesus fulfilled it, and it's finished, and it's done. So let's see if this makes more sense as we read through Romans 7. Let's begin just right in the very beginning, Romans 7, chapter 1. Now, dear brothers and sisters, you who are familiar with the law, don't you know that the law applies only while a person is living? For example, when a woman marries the law, the law binds her to her husband as long as he is alive. But if he dies, the law of marriage no longer applies to her. So while her husband is alive, she would be committing adultery if she married another man. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law and does not commit adultery when she remarries. So here's the illustration that Paul uses. I think it's kind of funny. Sometimes people try to like teach um, like marriage principles out of this passage. That's, that's not what, I mean, nothing Paul's saying is wrong, but that's not what this is given for. The context of this is he's just giving an illustration that, that we can understand. Like, like if there's a married couple and one, of the, the cup, one in the marriage passes away, then there's no longer an obligation to that lifelong, that's what they stand before God and witnesses to to make a, a proclamation, a, a dedication, and a commitment to a lifelong. Well, if that life is over, we don't have any problems. And the married, you know, the, the person who is married and, and now widowed doesn't have a problem understanding that they don't have an obligation to their deceased spouse anymore. Um, that doesn't take away from, from that, that, that person or that relationship but there's just a different relationship going on now. So that's how Paul uses it. Um, so it goes on in, in, in verse 4. I think this will make more sense as it's fleshed out. Verse 4, he goes on and says, So my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united with the one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. 
He doesn't get away from the fact that what this, because this has all happened to us and Jesus fulfills it and we enter into this relationship uh, with him, God still, we still have uh, work to do. And that's, that's, that's what he uh, spells out in the last couple of chapters that we, we walk through. The work doesn't make us right with God, but God still calls us to live a life that honors him. Um, and he reiterates it there in verse 5. It goes on to say, When we were controlled by our old sinful nature, uh, sinful desires were at work within us. And the law aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds resulting in death. So here he's pointing out the purpose of the law. One of its greatest purposes is to reveal that we fall short of God. It's, one, it's, it's described in scripture as a mirror that we, that we look at and we can see the imperfections in our own life. It's described as a, a school teacher, something that shows and reveals and teaches us that God's standard is way, way up here and we don't come anywhere close to it. And without the law, we wouldn't fully realize that. And Paul gives a specific example in his own life here. Um, It goes on in verse 6. But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the spirit. And he's trying to reiterate, and he does this in a stronger way. He's warning these Romans, these, these Christians that are living in Rome. Um, he's warning them because he's seen this pattern take hold in other, other churches that, that he's helped start. That these Judaizers come along and they try to make you follow the law and say you're a believer. And, and Jesus, they, they just want to put them hand in hand. And Paul, in other letters, he gets really upset about it. Because he says it basically nullifies what Jesus has done. And you're not really trusting in Jesus because Jesus, you're saying, didn't completely finish it. He just kind of get, gets you a boost to finish and complete what God wants you to do to be right with him. And Paul, he, that is when he gets the most animated in his writing, is when he's dealing with that subject. And if you look at Christian history, that's our pattern. If you look at people, like our pattern of trying to approach God and be religious, it's a pattern of getting into... Okay, well, what, what laws, what requirements, what things do we fulfill to be right with God? And if we go back to the truth of Scripture and what Jesus has done, it, well, in Matthew five seventeen through 20, we won't read the whole thing, but Jesus says that he hasn't come to abolish the law, but he came to do what? Complete it. To finish it. And then you jump to John 19.30. Also, we will, just for your reference, what does he do when he's hanging on the cross? And he, as, as right before he gives his life, he proclaims that it is finished. And, and, and partly what he's talking about is this law that he has completed it. He has finished it. That the law isn't evil in and of itself. But it shows God's standards. It gives us God's path and his way of doing things. Some of them are real specific to his chosen people in, in, in the circumstance they found themselves in. But, but that's, what, uh, 
That's what happened on the cross. And then we get this incredible picture of, of what this means. When, when Jesus said it's finished, what happened right after that? The veil that separated the Holy of Holies in the temple, the presence of God uh, being represented in the temple, and it had these different court areas, and the, and the most inner part of it was the Holy of Holies, representing God's presence there. And, and only one day a year could the high priest go in there and, and uh, on the Day of Atonement and uh, atone for, for that year for the, the sin of the people. And what happens? This, this veil that is incredibly high, incredibly thick, rips in half from the top to the bottom, humanly impossible to do this. And it shows that there is, Jesus completed it and there's not that separation from us and God based on us not fulfilling the law. That Jesus fulfills it and us putting our trust in him gives us the credit for fulfilling it as well. He goes on in verse seven to say, well then, I know it's a lot of kind of technical theology that he's kind of walking through here. But this is Paul, and we love him at this point, right? Yay, Paul. Okay, well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. Here's where he gives his illustration. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said, you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there was no law, sin would not have that power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law. But when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life. And so that's something, and I think that's a great illustration that Paul uses. What is coveting? It's just, it's not being satisfied with what God has has provided you with or blessed you with and desiring and wanting something else that's not yours. So you're kind of, you know, when you break it down and think about it, you're going, okay, God's not good to me. God hasn't provided to me because what I have isn't enough. I want that. But without the law, wouldn't we just rationalize that? That's what I do. That's what people do when I talk to them about it, about what God's standards are. It's like, well, that's just human nature. Someone drives by in an awesome car. I'm just like, yeah, I want to be, why don't I have that? And what do I need to get that? And why, I deserve that more than that punk driving down the street. Like, ah, what's up with that? But that's just natural. Like, how could, that, how could there be anything wrong with that? Oh, well, God's standard shows us our sinful nature shows us these things that we might not, and you could use other examples, but we might not come to the conclusion on our own uh, that is something that doesn't meet his standard. So he goes on and says, here's my example. And I love how real Paul is. He's not, he, he doesn't, uh, well, we'll talk about that in a minute, but just how the leaders God use, um, uses are, are very imperfect. Uh, but he's very honest here. For instance, the power of sin came to life. Verse 10, and I died, so I discovered that the, laws, uh, that the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of, of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me, but still the law itself is holy, and its commands are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law, which is good, cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible 
sin really is, it uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. All right, another way, this is another part of Paul's writing to the Galatians. In Galatians 3.10, he kind of, here's maybe another way to look at some of these truths that he's sharing with us. But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scripture says, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. And that is the standard that we see time and time again. That the law isn't something that we look at, pat ourselves on the back at for following or, or, or use it to compare ourselves with other people around us and say, well, I'm fulfilling the law a lot better than that person. So when God's just like kind of figuring out who to, who to take into heaven, I'm going to be in the upper echelon, surely. And so I'm okay. No, here's what, here's what the truth of the law says. If you break any point of it, and Jesus would teach this on the Sermon on the Mount and in other places. If you break any point of the law, you become a lawbreaker. And so that is what you are. Now, now you, might, you might think uh, someone on death row who's murdered a dozen people. And, and, and then someone in the cell next to him has only killed two people. And they're comparing, you know, who do they have to compare themselves to? The other people in death row. And they go, well, I've only killed two people. And these people, the guy next to me, he's killed 12. I'm not that bad. Well, you're both murderers, right? And what God's word declares to us, and and it's hard for us to wrap our brains around because we love just comparing ourselves to other people. But we're talking about God's standard. We're talking about what makes us right with God, what puts us in a right relationship with God so that for eternity we can be in this right, perfect relationship. And, and so what God's word declares about every single person in this room, yeah, especially you guys and me especially, is that we are all lawbreakers and we have come short of God's standard. Um, so... It's kind of like, man, here's another way I like to illustrate it. Who likes amusement parks? <laughs> My wife did not raise her hand. That does not surprise me. So I remember I used to always drag my family to Disneyland. Uh, as a kid, I grew up in Southern California. It's just so nostalgic. I'm like, my kids have to grow up with these values in their life of loving Disney and giving them all their money, right? All, all their money. So we, we lived in Texas at the time, though, so, so we'd, we'd go still about once a year, maybe. And uh, I remember once rolling up to um, uh, Indiana Jones, and you had to be, I think, 44 inches to ride it. And I uh, see Indiana Jones hat over there. And um, <clears throat> Jackson, oh, he's like 43 and a half, you know? And so... Okay, I'm a pastor, but I'm going to confess. Because they got the, you know, the people checking, and they go up there. And, and so I just went over to the little eatery across the line and grabbed a bunch of napkins and folded them up and put them under his heel. <laughs> and I just gave him some lifters real quick. I know, I'm not a good person. <laughs> See, I too have fought, you know. <clears throat> so um, he made it. Uh, but, but what, what God's law is, it is, uh, you have to be this tall 
to ride. <laughs> you have to be this tall, this standard to make it into heaven. And, and, and the standard, if we could think of it in a height terminology, it's 100 feet high. So everybody in the world who has grown to 100 feet high in, in their height, you make it into heaven. And that's where we go, oh, well, without that standard, without that rule, we wouldn't know how high that standard really is and what that really takes. But when we read God's word and see that standard, we go, oh, I need a savior. <laughs> I need someone to vouch for me. <laughs> I need someone, I, I, I'm not even close. I can't even approach making that standard. Um, so, so that helps me in my deception uh, remember what that's all about. So <clears throat> he goes on um, to talk about struggling with sin. We'll go through this uh, quickly. In verse 14, uh, he says, so the trouble is not with the law, for it is, it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't rely, really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that, that does it. And so he does, again, he says, hey, the law is not bad. I actually agree with it because I'm convicted that I haven't followed it. And so I understand it's good and I feel bad for not following it. And, and you read through this, and in some translations especially, you're like, hey, I know this guy. He writes stuff like green eggs and ham and, and, and stuff like that as he goes through and says, I do what I don't want to do, but I do what I do do, and, and on and on. He, he goes on to confuse us a little bit more. And I know that nothing good lives in me. That is, in my sinful nature, I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't, green eggs and ham, I am Sam. No, I don't want to do what, what is wrong, but I do it anyways. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. Whew. Okay, Paul. So he keeps pointing out this sin nature. Now here's what he's not doing is completely shifting blame. He's pointing to himself. And so often what we do is, is blame our circumstances, blame other people when we don't, when we know that we're convicted and we aren't doing something that, that morally is not, is not right. We know it doesn't follow God's word. And, and so often we just blame, you know, well, uh, I, I've, uh, it's okay for me or, or what else? I, I had no other choice. And, and we come up with, with excuses. And he's not doing that. He's saying he's pointing to himself. And saying, I have this sin nature. Because I know that's what a lot of Christians struggle with. Okay, I, I've accepted Christ. Or, or I watch and observe other people who say they've accepted Christ. And guess what? They still aren't perfect. I, I've still seen them make some big blunders and mistakes or, or, or whatever. And, and, and Paul recognizes this too. This is a dude who started all these churches who God is using in a miraculous way, writing scripture and, and all sorts of things. And, and he's going, man, he has this struggle. 
I've got this sin nature still. While I'm here in this world, now the, the, the hope and the beauty that we have is, is after this life, this sin nature will be completely done away with. And there won't be the temptation that we have because he's tempted by things and then his sin nature uh, continues in him. Not that he's not growing. We talked about that last week. That he's still, he's, he's growing to, to, be, uh, to be wrestling with these things and trying to put that sin nature to death and starve it as much as he can. <clears throat> but he goes on in verse 21. Um, I have discovered the principles of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. The power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death. And man, we would be sad if we just ended it there. And Romans is done. (laughs) No. There's a bunch of other chapters, but this chapter isn't finished. Because here's what he ends it with. Thank God. The answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. But what is the answer? The only answer. Not a part of the equation. Not part of the answer. The answer is Jesus Christ. So real uh, quickly, let's look at some of these. Um, If you guys want to fill out some things in your program, we'll do this. Because what I thought would be most powerful is what I think is helpful for Paul is he acknowledges the enemy within. And and he sees the struggle. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't pretend it's not there. But he knows that he still has this sinful nature. Now, in your life groups, you guys are going to talk about uh, this process of, of what it means to be saved and that the Bible describes it as being justified before God that legally when you put your faith in Jesus the Bible says you simply call out uh, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved that you simply come to an understanding of your sinfulness of your brokenness of your rebellion against God and you say Jesus you're the only way I trust in you I accept this free gift that you offer Uh, When you do that, you are instantly justified before God. You have this legal standing of being made right. Not because of what you've done, but because someone has credited your account. Uh, Jesus has wiped away your sin and paid for that. And then he credits your account with his righteousness. And we don't deserve it and we can't earn it. But that is the Christian message. And then you have this lifelong process of being sanctified. But you're legally, your standing is right with God. That cannot change. But we still have this sinful nature. And, and as we're in this world, God wants us to become more and more like Jesus. And that's sanctification. But that doesn't hinge on your standing before God. And then in heaven... The theological term that we use and the Bible uses is glorification. That we get done away with the sinful nature, that we aren't tempted anymore. And, and, and then we're completely, we're, we've been justified. We've been through the sanctification process here in this world. And then in heaven, we're in glorification. Uh, kind of our, our final standing before God. Um, and so, um, as we're in this sanctification process, it is very helpful to know that we have this enemy within. Paul knew it. Um, And uh, so the first reason why this is important before we get to that, um, we've seen this pattern that Paul has pointed out that we're all, we all fall short. 
that we all, all are sinners and we all are in that same camp. Romans 5 says that. We inherited this sin from Adam. Romans 3.23 is a classic verse that says all have, come, all, uh, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So number one, without acknowledging the enemy within, we'll be blindsided by our sin. One way to know that we can get trapped back into sin and really make some major um, errors is by not acknowledging the fact that that's a possibility for us. One thing that really surprised me in my world um, of seeing pastors make big moral failings. And I've had even friends and stuff, pastors who have, uh, who, who have had affairs. And, and, and I, you know, you try to, you scratch your head and you get frustrated and you're thinking, oh, you're, you know, the position in you're, in, you're in, how could you make that decision? And, and they, a lot of people have done studies to try to figure out, you know, what were the key causes of a pastor going out and having an affair? And the one common factor that they could find among all the pastors of a study that did a pretty large study of this, there were all these little factors. The only one that was in common was that they all thought this could never happen to me. I'm a pastor. There's no way this could ever happen to me. And, and that's what <clears throat> Paul recognizes. He doesn't pretend that he doesn't have this sin nature anymore, that he doesn't have temptation, that he's not, uh, he doesn't ignore the fact that he's still in a broken, fallen world that, that can lead him to do what he struggled with, what he doesn't want to do. And, and here's the thing when we get blindsided by sin and, and not recognize that, then we make excuses. We, and we, we, you know, we do some, we treat someone, we treat our spouse how we wish we wouldn't, or we, you know, make that, that, uh, cut that corner at work, and we're like, ah, I shouldn't have done that, or whatever, or we blow up, someone pushes your button, anybody know what your button is? Don't push that button, <laughs> you know, someone pushes your button, and, and then, you know, you like blow up, and, and you go, ah, oh, well, here's what we say, that wasn't, that's not really me. Or, 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 we, or we excuse other people, especially if we really like them or their loved ones or they're our kids. They're a really good person. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've heard that from people. Like their kids, you know, like just got some horrible sentence and, and they're in prison and they did some horrible thing. And they're like, but deep down, they're a really good person. I'm like, how delusional are we? When we get our button pushed and we go, well... I'm just stressed. I just have been stressed this week, and so I let it all out. Here's what we're saying. Most of the time, we have enough energy to fake who we really aren't. And we can put up this front, and we can be nice and patient. But when we're out of energy, all the fakeness goes away, and the real us comes out. When we are pressed, when we go through difficulties... That is what's really inside of us. When you press a fruit or something, what's really in that fruit comes out. And so if you really want to know what a person's all about, look at them. If you're dating, here's some great dating advice. (laughs) Observe that person you're dating under stress. And don't make an excuse and say, oh, well, that's because they were stressed out. No, that's who they really are. But our culture has a way of just kind of sweeping that away and making excuses and saying, oh, well, you know, I'm Irish, so I have this hot temper or whatever. 
And, and the Bible does not give us those kind of, you know, license to make those excuses. But, but we will never really put this sin nature and not allow it to kind of to destroy what God wants to do in our lives. And this is talking to people who have made a decision to put their trust and faith in Jesus. And they stand in that, in that position um, in, a, in a permanency because it's what, based on what Jesus did. But, but our, our lives and what God wants us to do and our relationships and all those things can really be destroyed if we live in delusion and we don't understand the power of what our sin nature can still call us to do. So getting out of that denial. Number two, we'll focus on the wrong enemy. <clears throat> we'll focus on the wrong enemy. <clears throat> And this kind of goes back to what I said about pushing buttons. <clears throat> Instead of looking at our button and saying, why when that's pushed do I blow up? We blame the person who pushed it. Well, it's my button. <laughs> and, and, and we just deflect and say, well, they, and, and we, we blame other people. And, and uh, we do this um, sometimes as a Christian community. I think I grew up in an era or, I don't know, maybe in, in certain kind of churches that would focus on this. Instead of us as believers coming together and saying, hey, we're broken, messed up people, but all, uh, except for the, the grace of God, uh, we've been made right and just have incredibly incredible humility. Uh, we've had a, a big age of churches in America, I think, that have instead focused on the wrong enemy and instead of looking at themselves as believers trying to be more Christ-like, they look at a secular world and say, why don't they live like Jesus? Why don't they have our Christian values? They're horrible. Let's, let's, let's avoid them. Let's get in our own cocoon. Let's get away from them. And it's focusing on the wrong enemy. Now, we've seen, I don't know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years of a lot of Christian groups making that their focus. The Bible says that's not supposed to be our focus, uh, but making that their focus. And today we live with a very declining Christian church in America. And, and I think we're, we've just got our focus wrong, that we're to, we're to focus on, on us. Um, it, this came out when, it, when, I, uh, when, I plant, when I came, we came here from Texas to plant this church in Utah. And we had some people who claimed to be believers, claimed to be Christians in Texas, say, I don't understand why you'd want to plant a church in Utah. And it's because our job is to proclaim the gospel. Yeah, but, you know, I know a little bit about Utah, and they've got good values. Ah! That's not, our goal isn't to go around and kind of be the moral police. That's the Holy Spirit's job. We're to proclaim the gospel and allow God to change people individually from the inside out. Not as a Christian community condemn people who don't know Jesus. So, of course, they don't have the values of Jesus. Or to isolate ourselves and pull ourselves away from any influences like that. Um, thank goodness Jesus didn't do that, right? That bugs me too. Well, I'm, I'm getting off. I need to stick with my notes here, right? But, but thank goodness Jesus didn't sit in heaven and go, I, I don't want to go where, where there's sin and evil and secular values. <laughs> but he loved us enough that he did. And he stripped off some of the, some of not his, not his uh, deity, but, but he, he sacrificed some things to, to become fully human, to come here 
in our sin, in our secular values, in our filth, in our mess, in order to proclaim who he is and accomplish what he accomplished. So sometimes individually we do this. As a church family, we do this. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, real quickly, I got to read this. Uh, 5, 9 through 13 says, well, and this is Paul again. Well, I wrote to you before. I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. Now listen, Paul is talking to Christians. And he's talking to these Christians who say, hey, I'm just going to avoid people who don't have the same values that I have. And he said, when I wrote to you, I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin. That sounds like, oh, wait a minute. This is not, this is, well, you keep reading. But I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or greedy or cheap people who worship idols. You would have to leave this world to avoid people like that. And a lot of times we've tried to do that, just make our own little Christian bubbles. And then we find out all those people in there are a bunch of sinners too. Um, You'd have to leave the world. So he's saying, I gave you this instruction about people who live that way, who don't have your values, but, but those aren't the people I, I wanted you to avoid. Well, who's he talking about? I meant that you are not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer yet indulges in sexual sin or is greedy or worships idols or is abusive or is a drunkard or cheats people. Don't even eat with such people because they have the Holy Spirit in them and they need some loving uh, Christians to recognize the truth and know that that's destroying them and there should be consequences in that scenario. But you see the contrast to to the world that he's making. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders. Is that everyone's favorite verse in, in the secular world? The Bible says don't judge. Oh yeah? Wait. But it certainly is your responsibility to judge. We are to judge. The Bible says we are to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as scripture says, you must remove the evil person from among you. James 1.13 says, and remember, when you are being tempted, do not say, God is tempting me. God is never tempted to do wrong, and he never tempts anyone else. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entices us and drags us away. So that's the other thing that we can do in, in trying to avoid us and, 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 and just focus on our heart issues, our sin, what, what is drawing us away from God is, well, we blame God, and he's actually tempting. And James says that. Um, it's our appetite that's the problem, not the lure. Uh, number three, we'll become disillusioned and cynical. If we don't recognize the enemy within, this is another thing that we see happen especially to new believers. Let me, let me speak especially to new believers. I've seen this happen a lot. People come to faith in Christ. This is new. This is exciting. And they put on this huge pedestal the spiritual leaders that may have had, had something to do with getting them there or they just view them so in such a high way because uh, they're so excited about their new faith and they're looking for kind of a hero in flesh to, to follow. And... Um, let me just encourage you, don't put your spiritual leaders on a pedestal. And, and here's the example we have throughout Scripture. Everyone. <laughs> Think of any leader that God uses in the Bible. Any. I mean, there might be some exceptions. And the only exceptions I can think, like we don't have a lot of detail about their story. But people we know, 
man, they all make huge blunders. Struggle like Paul. They all go, ah, I do what I didn't want to do. I mean, David, the greatest king, what does he do? He has an affair. He has a husband killed. He has a horrible relationship with his family that's really dysfunctional. Peter denies Jesus in his, his, his hour of greatest need, you might say. He, you know, um, he, he, he disagrees with Jesus during his ministry. He's like, no, nah, Jesus, you're wrong on this one. Let me, let me correct you. Um, I mean, leader after leader, Moses, you know, oh, yeah, you can't go into the promised land because of, you know, how you're handling a situation. And I mean, all the leaders, why does God do this? It seems like God, like, reveals, like, opens up the curtain to say, look, we're all sinners. We're all messed up. We all need a Savior. Not, there's not one that's, like, higher, and we look to them and, and think, oh, they're my example. Jesus is our example. He's who we look to. Um, and last one, we'll create a climate of hypocrisy and harshness. If we aren't open and honest and are willing to reveal the struggles and the sin and the temptations that we have in our, li- our own lives, you know what we do? We become plastic and fake, and then we focus on others, which leads to a Christian group being hypocrites and, and being harsh. And, 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 uh, and we see this example of, of people who who uh, throughout scripture and Jesus dealt with religious people who love God. We're trying to follow his way, but they slipped into this hypocrisy of making their entire, I'm talking about the Pharisees, making their entire ministry about kind of focusing on other people and pointing out their flaws and, and, and their issues. Um, here at Lifestone, we know that the only way that, that, that we're going to grow, that we're going to really starve and defeat this enemy within this sin nature that draws us away from what God wants is that we're open, that you can go to your life group and say, man, I blew it. And your life group not go, oh my goodness, you're, you know, let's stone you. Um, but gather around you and go, man, when I blew it in that way, you know, here's how I restored the relationships that I hurt in that process. Here's scripture that God used to, to help me in this area. Um, and so, Uh, I just want to end with just recognizing Paul did this in a whole chapter. He points out that we need to recognize this this enemy within. I'm going to ask the band to come on up, and we're going to close in a a last song. And during this song, this is just a quick uh, time of reflection I want you guys to have about if you've put your trust and faith in Jesus, understanding, hey, hey, God, would you reveal any blind spots in my life? Would you reveal any, anything that's, that's going to make me more want to target someone else than, than evaluate my own life and my own heart? And if you've never given your life and heart to Jesus, if you've never understood that that hundred foot, I was going to say 10 foot, because I don't think there's ever been a human that's lived to 10 feet or been that tall. I don't know. Look it up on Guinness. Uh, Guinness. Yeah. But um, it's, it's not even close. God's standard's not even close. Uh, to, to any of us. And, and so if, if you've recognized like, oh, I, I've been my whole life thinking my own efforts, my religious ceremonies, my, my whatever, that is what makes me meet God's standard. That's not Christianity. That's not the gospel. 
It is what Jesus did alone. And we all are failures and we're all sinful and we all come short of God's standard. But God loved us so much and wants to restore that relationship with us that he came down and did what was necessary through, through Jesus. If you've never accepted that free gift, today should be the day that you make that decision.